Welcome to the podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. We will be reading from Galatians chapter 4, beginning in in verse 4, and we will be reading through verse 7. If you would please follow along with me. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this new year, Lord. We know that your mercies are renewed every morning, and great is your faithfulness. So we look forward, Lord, to coming to know you deeper and to draw nearer to you as you have drawn near to us. We pray in that, that you would help us to see your spirit bearing witness to the hope and the power that are in our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to find joy, purpose, and power in the presence of our Lord Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, and help us to see what has been accomplished in the great exchange of the gospel and the hope of Christmas. It is in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit that we pray. Amen. Amen. Y'all may be seated. It it is wonderful to be with you all here on this first day of the year. For those who don't know who I am, my name is Mackenzie Buchanan. Most people just call me Mac. And I serve as the deacon over the College and Connections Ministries here. I wanted to share with you all, since it is now 20 years since this film came out, about the time when a movie made me cry over the idea of strawberries. 20 years ago, there was a film... ancient history at this point called The Return of the King. I I know not everyone here has seen The Lord of the Rings. That's okay. Repentance is a Christian virtue. But there is, in fact, this scene near the end of the film that is beautiful, that is so profound, where the two main characters, our stand-ins, Frodo and Sam, have made it to the top of this erupting volcano called Mount Doom. And as they stand there, having completed this great journey over these three very long films, we followed them, we've seen their ups and their downs. They reach the top and they collapse, unable to make the last stretch of the journey, crushed by the weight of all the things that have been put upon them by their journey thus far. And the greatest character in the film, and the best character in any film, I don't care what you say, Samwise Gamgee, turns to Frodo and says, do you remember the taste of strawberries, Master Frodo? Do you remember the feel of grass under your feet? Do you remember the sound of running water? He draws his mind back to these simple, beautiful things. We see that Home has come this whole way with them. These characters have been fully developed by the time they get there. So much has gone into this. So much has built to this moment. And so 
Sam, in a great act of heroism, throws Frodo on his shoulders, carries him up. They complete the mission. It's this great and climactic thing where we get to see these characters who we've been with all this time finish what they've done. And then they lay outside the mountain awaiting their death. And a bunch of eagles show up. It's really weird. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. We, there's so many things in this story that have been set up that we've been following, but out of nowhere, this thing that has not been set up comes in and kind of just disrupts the flow of everything. And the, they're saved, and that's good. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm glad that they made it. I'm glad they, they had a happy ending to the story, but it, it, it kind of feels unsatisfactory. It doesn't feel like it was supposed to have gone that way. It feels like everything inside the story was pointing to a different picture. And the thing that came out of nowhere that wasn't in the story is what solved the problem. Well, film and literary critics have a term for this. It is called the deus ex machina. In Latin, that literally translates to the god and the machine. It's this idea of an 11th hour, dire moment story where something that was not established, not pointed to, not alluded to, changes all factors, and then everything's okay. Sometimes the superhero realizes he has another power he hasn't had that whole time, or a new power level, or sometimes a villain just suddenly decides to be good, or there's just a spontaneous bit of new information. It, it looks different in different story settings, but we, we get the idea that something that's not supposed to be there fixes the problem. And for most of us, and for most authors, that's kind of cheating. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't seem like it should work out like that. Yeah, we might get the ending we want, but we didn't get there the way we wanted to get there. We, we have this idea that every story needs to be finished by white-knuckled hard effort, by manifesting our destinies, by pushing through, by being the best, by working the hardest. We want to be able to finish our own tasks, to solve our own problems, to be our own saviors. And stories that end with a deus ex machina sometimes tell us that's not possible. Sometimes we have everything we think we need and it's not enough. Sometimes there are problems that are unsolvable and we need something to fix those problems. Sometimes, no matter how hard we try, we can't be our own saviors. And in many ways, this thread that connects so many stories, this motif, this, this idea of a deus ex machina, actually itself points to an even greater reality, a story behind all stories, <laughs> a, a reality that undergirds all of reality and says, maybe there is a problem that there is no solution to in our story. Maybe there is something that is so completely and utterly broken that we can't fix it. That we need something to enter into our story from outside of our story to make it right, or else our story cannot be fixed. This is in many ways what we are celebrating in the season of Christmas. Now, I have in front of me the Advent candle still lit. This is, this is the traditional practice because the season of Advent just concluded. And we are currently in a 12-day stretch 
that the church in its liturgical calendar calls Christmas. This, if you've in grade school sang the song 12 Days of Christmas, that's because the church has 12 days of Christmas, following the actual day of Christmas. This season is defined by one factor, by one celebration, by one attribute, and that is that we are celebrating that the Christ that we were waiting for in Advent has come. He is here. That Christ is the one who entered into our story. That he is the one who confronted our greatest problem, our greatest issue. That the Christ is the factor in our story that solved the unsolvable conflict. This is what we are celebrating here, and this is where I, would, I am going to lead us with a sermon titled The Great Exchange, which is also my only point today. We're going to look back at, at verse 4 that begins with this phrase, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Now, I'm a sucker for catchphrases. I love profound, punchy statements. And when the fullness of time has come, it's such a good statement. It's got so much meat. It's so profound. And there is so much depth to that phrase. I I could talk for hours. I've heard whole sermons, whole books written on just this phrase. People looking and saying, the only way that that Christianity could have grown the way it did was at the fullness of time, Rome had roads that went to everywhere. There was a language that was generally spoken by everyone. This cosmic coincidence could only be the hand of fate, and surely that's what this is talking about. But it also seems to be pointing to the book of Daniel and many of the minor prophets all coming to this point where Christ is the fulfillment of so many things that we have been waiting for, that we have been expecting. But it also might be pointing to the fact that there is sociological data that indicates that the church at this point in history was so diverse and unique. It was multicultural. Both men and women had a place. It, It was this unique melting pot that had never existed in any culture prior to this point. And truly, all of those things happened at the fullness of time. But I think that there's something even bigger, something that this text seems to be hitting on here. At the fullness of time, God wasn't just arranging sociological data and geography and language. God was doing something of universal cosmic proportions. We know that because at the fullness of time, the thing that we see is that God sent forth his Son. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, was God with us. That shouldn't happen. God shouldn't be here. The author doesn't step into the story. It doesn't work that way, but it did. He was born of the Virgin Mary into this real place, conceived by the Holy Spirit within the confines of time and space that we are under. He breathed our air, drank water, walked and talked amongst us, took on our sickness, our pimples, our shame. And according to this text, Jesus did all these things specifically to be born under the law. 
Now, I know law can be a kind of sticky term for some people, so I want to explain this right here. The law is the thing that God expects all people, but particularly his people, to do. It is the moral expectations and obligations of God for people. The ultra shorthand is law equals do. Law equals do something. Keep that shorthand in mind because this text seems to have in mind that Jesus and his relation to the law are the great cosmic happening that happened at the fullness of time. It is this in particular that it hones in on, and this is why this matters. Jesus was under the fullness of the law because he came to redeem those who were under the law. All of us. Redeem means reclaim, reclaim because his people were in bondage. They were, they were slaves to something. Like Israel was enslaved to, to Egypt, likewise, humanity is enslaved to sin. Israel, like all of humanity, had failed to keep the standards of God's law. And because they, all of humanity was, had failed this purpose, we were lawbreakers. We owed an infinite debt we could not pay. A debt that was passed down from Adam to his children, to his children, to his children, all the way to us. We are sons of men, humans, people, born into a debt of sin we cannot pay. A debt that could only be paid by pure, perfect, holy, righteous completion of God's law. To put it this way, the law was the standard of God that we did not meet. Sin is the state of failure of the law that we were all under. All of humanity is under the law. All of humanity has failed the law. All of humanity is in sin. Good advice couldn't help. We were too far gone. We needed a deus ex machina. We needed something outside of our story. Specifically, we need someone who is outside of sin, but under the law. To say that again, we need someone who is outside of sin, but under the law. And in Jesus, we received one. Christ, who knew no sin, entered into our story to be the savior to those who knew nothing but sin. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians when he says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. Christ entered into our story. Christ lived the life we should have lived under the law, bearing and completing the moral obligations and expectations of God, then he became our scapegoat. He died the death we deserved. Christ's righteousness for our unrighteousness. This is the great exchange. This is the hope outside of our story. Sin was the problem we could not solve. And there was no way out of it because we were born into it. We needed one who knew no sin 
to enter into our story to bear the consequences of sin, and we needed a righteousness that we could not complete because we were born unrighteous. If this exact scenario wasn't met, we were doomed. This is the state of humanity. But this is precisely what we received in Christmas. The one who bore our sin and shame, bore our temptations yet did not sin, entered into our story, and unlike the sacrifice of lamb and goat, lambs and goats, unlike our self-savior complexes and our hard work, Christ was actually capable of paying our debts, actually satisfying the law of God and the due punishment of failing it. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of Christmas. We needed a deus ex machina, and we ha- found one in Christ. Rather, he found us. What we lacked, he possessed. We had no righteousness of our own. So Christ gave us his righteousness. We had no right to draw near the throne. So Christ gave us his right to draw near the throne. We had a debt we could never atone, never pay for. And so Christ, from his perfect account of righteousness, paid for it. He entered into our story He became incarnate, became human so that we could receive what we could never attain. The great theologian and philosopher Augustine of Hippo puts it this way in saying, he alone became the son of man in order that we might become through him sons of God. So he alone on our behalf undertook punishment without deserving it so that we through him might obtain grace without deserving it. As the text we read goes on from verse 5, it says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus Christ, who gave his life, was not content simply clearing our debt but credited to us that which we could have never earned, could have never afforded. Even if we lived a perfect life every day from when our conscious brains kicked on at whatever, two years old. I don't think my three-year-old's has yet. We'll see. Even if we lived a perfect life from that moment on, it's not enough because we were born into that sin. Yet Christ gave us a new identity counting fully over what we were born into, fully over everything we had done. Christ gave us a new identity that was not defined by what we lacked anymore, but by what we possessed. We are given a title, sons and daughters of God, inheritors. Christ, who entered into our story, then stayed in our story by sending his spirit to mark us with that identity as sons and daughters. Christ marked us with himself. By the spirit, we are sealed by the promises of God, fulfilled by Christ, counted in the righteousness of Christ, empowered by Christ's nature to be what we could not be otherwise. Or, as Ephesians 1 puts it, in him we have obtained an inheritance 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." In Christ, the Spirit marks us with a new identity, sons. Now, just as men need to learn to be the bride of Christ, we all need to learn to be the sons of God, because this is not a gendered title. This is one of status and inheritance. Men and women alike are both counted as full inheritors of what was rightly due only to the Son of God. I think it is summed up best in this simple phrase, and this is my my takeaway sentence for everyone here today. Take this phrase. Because the Son of God became a son of man, sons of men are made sons of God. I will repeat that one more time. Because the Son of God became a son of man, the sons of men are made sons of God. God, who created us, the author of our story, made us who are just creatures, just creations, into inheritors of the gifts given to his Son. We receive what we could not have even imagined when we receive the Spirit of Christ, when we receive the generosity and grace offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we apply and understand what has been given to us in the faith that we receive, because Christ raised from the dead, we too will raise from the dead. Because Christ inherits the kingdom of God, we too will inherit and live in the kingdom of God because Christ will rule for eternity future. We get to be in the new creation with God, with Christ, for our eternity future. In the Spirit, we who are in Christ have all the fullness of God to look forward to in the present and eternity future. This is the grace of the incarnation. This is the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How is that for a deus ex machina? So here, here in conclusion are my three points for people who need really tangible handles to hold on to. Here's my takeaways for y'all. Point one, we who are born under the law are held accountable to the law and thus are born in debt to God. That debt requires pure, perfect, holy righteousness to pay. We ain't got that. Because we don't have that, we owe something we can never pay to God and therefore are separated from God by that. But point two, Christ entered into our story and paid that debt. He paid off the unrighteous debt, that, the, the sins that required justice He paid the life that required righteousness, and he gave that to us in his spirit as a new identity, as sons and daughters of God. And point three, as sons and daughters of God, 
We now live with a new, distinct identity. We have an intimacy with God that we would, could have never had on our own, one in which we can say, Abba, Father, my dear Father, who has given me love and grace and mercy, it, we get to draw near to God because God has drawn near to us. This is what Christmas is about. It's a story that shows us the, the dire strait that we find ourselves in, but also the profound hope offered by Jesus Christ, our Savior, our hero, the deus ex machina who met the problem that we could never meet and solved it. He became a son of man so that we, sons of men, could become sons of God. This is the story above and behind all stories. This is our gospel hope. This is the story of Christmas. So, Redeemer Christian Church, go from here knowing that in Christ you have received the fullness of the gift of God. You have been given the right to be called sons of God, blessed in knowing that because of the work of the Son of Man, you are sealed with the Spirit of Christ to forever be called a son of God. Amen? Men, please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for the grace you have lavished upon us, Lord, in that you did not stay distant, but you drew near to us. Lord, you saw our shame, you saw our inadequacy, you saw our failure and our brokenness and our hurt and our loss, and you drew near to it and you embraced us so that we can now embrace you. Lord, this grace that we now live in, let it define us in this new year. Let this new identity be that which most profoundly, most deeply fills us with hope, with joy, and with purpose going forward. I pray this in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church. Our mission is to declare the gospel with our words and display the gospel with our lives to our neighbors and to the nations. And your financial support makes resources like this possible. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting us and our mission at RedeemerChristianChurch.com backslash give. And thank you for listening.